Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope. Never Ever Give Up Hope is a show about people who have done that, who have done just that. No matter what they encountered, they never gave up. And every single one of the people that I interview have a common thread that runs through their stories, and that is hope. They never gave up hope. They didn't stop. They pursued. They persevered. They were determined. And it's exciting to hear these stories because no matter where we are in this world, we're going to run into situations and circumstances that can be devastating. And there are those that give up. But there are those who would never give up. And they hang on, even sometimes if it's only by a thread. And those are the people that I interview on Never Ever Give Up Hope. And it is so exciting. Some have survived incredible circumstances as a result of extreme poverty or uh, abuse or having to overcome serious depression or disease or debilitations of, of a variety of ways, even financial and this show gives them the opportunity to share their stories and it also to give us tips and encouragement because we all need encouragement we all go through things in our life we have situations that we need to learn how to cope with and my guests give coping skills and tips along with the encouragement never ever give up hope is now heard in over 140 countries that also indicates that no matter where we are on this planet, we need the message of hope. And I'm so glad to be able to share that with you. So thank you for listening, for my guests, of course, but also for my listeners, because without them, we would, wouldn't have a show. With me today, now, I have interviewed a lot of people with amazing stories, but not many of these people have actually given me goosebumps. When I read and researched Carrie Cohan's story, I did get those goosebumps. I think I related on some levels, and I know that you will, because when our children are involved in circumstances where we come in as the advocate, where we come in as the protector, when they are being threatened, this creates a whole new set of circumstances and scenarios that we were not prepared for. And this is exactly what happened to Carrie. Mm -hmm. Carrie Cohan is a national child advocate, a federal government witness, 
and a public spokesperson who changed the face of a country. In addition to changing Canadian law, Carrie founded Project Guardian and Mad Mothers Against Pedophiles, MMAP. This was in 1998. What MADD, what MAD did for drinking and driving, Carrie wanted to do for pedophilia and the protection of children by educating the public and changing the laws. That is a mouthful. Now you see why you're going to get goosebumps in listening to Carrie's story. Welcome, Carrie. <laughs> Thank you. What a kind introduction, I must say. Thank you. Well, let's start at the beginning of the story when you nearly lost your baby girl. This was the mm. first time. Mm -hmm. So it was 1998. I was living in a remote uh, northern community in northern British Columbia. And we were renovating a property that we had there, a trailer park. So we were living in one of the small trailers. And I was uh, preparing a lunch for my then husband and myself. And our little one was two years old, sleeping in her nursery in the crib next door, in the room next door to the kitchen. And as I'm cutting vegetables with a very long knife, I heard the floorboards creak behind me. And, you know, my husband wouldn't creep up like that on me, and he was at work. So I had uh, to make a decision very quickly what to do because I knew someone was standing behind me. And I turned around very fast with this long knife in my hand, and he was over six feet tall. And I went after him. I was like, who the hell are you? What are you doing in my house? And Mama Bear came out in me. And I'm four foot 11. He's over six feet. And I chased him out of the house. And, uh, and in those days, you know, we didn't have many laws to protect us as a family. In fact, he was better protected as the pedophile, as a perpetrator, than, uh, than we were as a family. And that was part of the discovery. When I phoned the police, they came and they interviewed him. They came back and said, well, geez, he seems like a really nice guy. We're going to run, you know, an investigation into him, but it might take a little while. It just happened that he was from the community we were living in at the time. And so they were able to look at old records very quickly. And they came back and they said, whatever you do, lock your doors, lock your windows, and do not, you know, let your daughter out of your out of your sight. Um, he's three-time convicted. Well, he, they didn't actually tell me at that time. They said, we can't legally tell you whether he is or isn't, but emphasis on the is, uh, convicted pedophile uh, because of his rights. So all we can tell you is lock your doors, lock your windows, and protect your daughter at all costs. And so had he been from outside of the community at that time, there was no, um, you know, connected service between all the, the police departments across Canada. So it would take up to three months to run a police search across the country in 1998 to see uh, what kind of history and what kind of warrants he had. And that's what ended up having to do. They, they had to run a search. It took three months. And in fact, it took a full year. Um, one year later, we finally were able to go to trial with him. Um, 
I, I wasn't able to do anything because he didn't actually harm our daughter, but I was a witness in that he was attempting. And so they were able to, um, to go after him on a historical case and actually get him back into prison again. But uh, it, took, it took a lot of work <laughs> to say, you know, it was, it was a lot of work to, to go after him. Let's go back to the initial encounter and tell me what you were feeling because I know Mm -hmm. that there was a lot of emotions involved and as you were going through the whole process of the scenario, you know, thinking the worst case scenario of what could happen and the fear that how did you deal with all that emotionally? Well, it it was absolutely terrifying, you know, Um, we, I felt that we had no protection. That was the surprising part was um, this was a silent epidemic back then, you know. And when I talk to people nowadays, I do a lot of public speaking. And when I speak to groups now, it's hard to remember back when we never spoke about pedophilia. And in fact, you know, my my first reaction was to have a town hall meeting. Um, I was not an activist. I was, you know, very meek, actually. My, my former husband was a public speaker. I let him have the limelight. I wanted to stay behind and not be seen. But this drove me, um, and I can't explain why. There was an inner calling. I just knew like I knew like I knew I had to do this. And so I contacted the media, and that was, you know, the police weren't able to help. They tried so hard. They really, they they tried their best, but there were no laws that could, could help. So um, I went to the media, and the media became my best friend. And, uh, and through there, you know, I started to uh, become an advocate. And I remember the very first town hall meeting, a police officer came. It was the, actually the police chief for the, the region. And he asked me, how long do you think it will take to change a law? You want to change, you know, some laws here for, um, he was a warrant expiry, it's called, meaning that he served his full four years. And in the States, um, they would have something called civil commitment, meaning that they could assess him at the end of his term, and if they deemed him to be still uh, a threat, they could keep him almost indefinitely. You know, But in our country, we didn't have that. He was a warrant expiry. He was free to leave with no parole, no nothing. And so I wanted to change that law, you know, first of all. I wanted to be able to you know, keep someone accountable because, as you know, um, there was no cure for pedophilia, not that it it is a disease. I think it is an actual sexual preference. And uh, and so, you know, it was, it was wanting to change this law. So the police chief asked me, how long do you think? And I said, well, maybe a year, two years at the most. And he laughed and he said, try five years. And he was bang on, actually. Each law has taken about five years on average, except Amber Alert. When we brought Amber Alert into Canada, I actually brought a lot of American laws into Canada. So when we brought Amber Alert into Canada with uh, MLA Heather Forsyth, it only took us two years because, you know, Heather Forsyth was amazing and uh and we had you know the police department and the media and everyone on our our side but it still took two years so you know it it was absolutely terrifying back then 
And um, I lost a lot of friends, actually. You know, I had husbands phone me up saying, leave my wife alone. You're terrifying her with these stories, with wanting her to get involved, you know, and we don't want to hear about this. We don't want to know about this. We don't want to hear about it. You know, it was a head in the sound kind of syndrome. And I understood, like, you know, it was a silent epidemic and no one, no one wanted to speak of it. Did you have any idea what you were up against when you initiated this? Oh, God, no. (laughs) No. (laughs) Oh, my God, no. Do you know how many uh, raids uh, that were involved uh, that that involved, you know, high-ranking political figures? um, Kingsclear, for instance, that involved a premier of a province, you know, and uh, some high-ranking RCMP officers and politicians, a Senate member, um, you know, the list went on. And so I had death threats, um, you know, the status quo, they didn't want it to be shaken up like I was shaking it up. I was going from coast to coast now, um, starting to talk. I remember... Oh, this is funny. I remember uh, hearing, uh, you know, my name on the on the radio for the very first time, and it was Warren on the weekend. He had a national program, and he was out of Vancouver, British Columbia, and he said, so what do you think about this stay-at-home housewife that's, you know, s- disturbing the peace and, and talking about pedophilia from coast to coast and wanting to change laws? I thought, oh, my God, he's talking about me. Like, oh, my God. And, uh, and... So I phoned him up, and um, I had never spoken publicly, and I started to hyperventilate. And I remember speaking to him on the radio, but it was almost like I stepped out of myself, and I was coaching myself to say, calm down now, breathe, breathe, breathe. And I actually apologized to Warren on air and said, I'm so sorry, I just ran up the stairs and I have to catch my breath. And (laughs) really what it was, was I was hyperventilating because I was so friggin' nervous. You know, I was so nervous. And, uh, and yeah, uh, that was the beginning of it all. (laughs) Why do you think you didn't stop when you overcame the first hurdle? And you felt the, like the first accomplishment. Uh, yeah, good question. You know, I've thought about that so many times. I had a reporter ask me that um, early on. I was, you know, in my 30s. And, and uh, she said, were you ever molested yourself? Because you have such a tenacity. Like a lot of parents, you know, would do a little bit of this to protect their children. But you kind of gone over top to, to really protect all kids globally, you know, some of the laws that you've brought through. And, uh, and I, I remember thinking back, I always suspected at that time that I'd be molested. I always could remember up to a certain point, but then I had no memory beyond that point. And I really believe that's nature's way of protecting you, you know, of the trauma and drama of going through what you did. And I also think that there was a blessing in all of that because I understood his energy. The moment I saw his eyes, the moment that I I could feel his energy, I knew what he was thinking. I knew what he was after. And it wasn't his excuse to be neighborly. He just wanted to come over and say hi. He was heading towards a nursery to get our daughter. And I knew his intentions because I had seen it before. And I think that's what made me, you know, 
insatiable. Like I just, I just could not stop uh, until I was fully exhausted. <laughs> and I stopped a couple of times, I should say, within the 17-year volunteer career um, of being a national advocate. I. I um, had to stop a, a couple of times because of PTSD. You know, when I started, there was nothing, no reporting system. So when I first went on on TV and radio, people were sending me personally in my email box videos that they found online or pictures that they found in their, you know, husband's um, computer or whatever, and. I was then sending all of this forward to the police. And uh, and unfortunately, I would see and hear much of much of this. It got to a point that I wouldn't even open stuff. I would just read what they were saying and then send it right away. I wouldn't open. I wouldn't want to look at it because it, it was so soul-destroying, you know. And uh, yeah, it was it was something. So I had to stop a couple of times with PTSD. But um, and then I'd heal and then I'd be good. And the day that I would say, OK, I'm ready, I'm, I'd say it to myself. OK, I think I'm ready to, you know, take this the battle sword up again. And uh, and sure enough, the phone would ring um, CBC or CNN or whoever it was would be phoning up asking for some kind of quote. And we'd be back in business again as a volunteer. I can't help but think as you're talking about this of what's actually happening in Hollywood right now and in the news. Mm. How does that affect you, knowing what you have accomplished, knowing that these guys are out there that have so much power and influence Mm. behind them? How do you deal with that? You take it one bite at a time. You know, it's like, how do you finish a whole cake? You take one bite at a time. And I think if you were to look at it as a whole, it would be too overwhelming. So it's baby steps. And we have taken down so many high flutin' powerful people in huge stings. Um, and I don't say we meaning like I was part of those stings, but I certainly was part of um, the advocacy work and sitting in front of the Justice Committee of Canada and speaking to them about changing the laws so we could, um, you know, uh, help make a difference. Sergeant Paul Gillespie out of Toronto, um, he's my hero. He he really um, was, you know, my sounding board, um, sat on boards with him. Uh, he's, you know, he was in, in charge of the Child Investigation Crime Unit out of Toronto, but worked internationally. So, um, we worked with um, British police as well and, and international uh, cases. And Paul would phone up and say, can't tell anyone right now, but we're about to bust this huge ring. And um, so get ready. You know, the, the media will have a feeding storm uh, tomorrow morning. And so he'd give me a heads up. And, and you know, we work together as a very good team in Ottawa, being able to change laws. Do you think that the laws, or do you know if the laws in the States and Canada are similar, or are there still great differences? Great difference. Actually, in 2007, I believe it was, I was speaking, or yeah, it might have been a little, a little later, I was speaking to that very thing that in the States you could get anywhere from 50 to 300 years for what you would get here, maybe six years. 
Uh, and that is, you know, I believe the case I used was nine years, but six years served. Um, and it, it creates an inequality. There was a study that came out, an EPCAT study, that um, it was 178 pages. And it basically said that Canada was a pedophile haven because of the laws. You know, if you have a choice of going to two different countries that are bordering on one another, and one, you could get up to 300 years in prison. So you know that you're never going to see the light a day or the other one you could get six to eight months served you know with uh with maybe a house arrest um <laughs> yeah what country are you going to wow. choose right wow. so that was what we were up against and we were able to bring in minimum sentencing a lot has changed you know i i was able to help bring in the child internet protection act and raise the age of consent at the time the oh this you'll love this one so it would have been 2005, I believe, the age of consent was 14. And we had a case in Edmonton, Alberta. A young girl, 14 years old, had brought home a 27 or 30, maybe 37-year-old man. And the parents didn't have any ability to uh, prosecute him, uh, you know, for pedophilia. Uh, they found him in the house and the police said, I'm so sorry, she's age of consent, she's 14, she can invite in whoever she chooses and you as parents have no right to kick him out and uh, if she chooses to let him in and there is no recourse so that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back um, and so I really went hard after raising the age of consent and we were able to do it I met with the um, the solicitor general and the justice minister at the time um, and it was it was an unbelievable conversation um, you know, they both told me that at the time, it was a liberal government at the time, and I know the liberal government has changed a lot since then. But back then, they had shared with me that um, they wanted to lower the age of consent to the age of 12, like in the Netherlands, and um, to have it as parental consent. Well, I came home from Ottawa, you know, with my head just hung because I thought we're going to hell in a handbasket. You know, if we're going to lower the age of consent to the age of 12 with parent parental advice, you're basically creating child prostitution based on parental, you know, consent. And, uh, and, and it also created such a problem with um, uh, child pornography, because how would you know where the child pornography comes from? Does it come from Canada? Does it come from the United States? Because in the States, the age of consent was 18, whereas in Canada, it was, you know, 14 at the time, but they were looking at bringing it down to 12. So I met with the prime minister, the justice committee, everyone, and I let them know exactly what I was thinking and uh, in no uncertain terms. And, uh, yeah, after that meeting, uh, it was actually, we had a hearing. And after that hearing, uh, the it was a unanimous consent to raise it to 16 um, which I asked for a minimum 16. And and it wasn't just me. We had four witnesses, and there was a series of, um, of you know, hearings. So I was one of many experts that were sitting in front of the Justice Committee, but uh, we were the last ones to be heard. And I had the police, um, the president of the police association, Tony Canavino, sitting beside me. I had Stephen, or Paul Gillespie, uh, beside me from, you know, Vancouver, or Toronto. And then um, Alan Borovoy was 
you know, speaking on the other side, he was the um, lead counsel for the Civil Liberties Association, and he believed that it should be lowered at the time. So, so uh, it was interesting debating against the best lawyer, supposedly, you know, best lawyer in Canada, one of the most uh, revered lawyers in Canada. And uh, at the end of it, uh, we won. So it was good. <laughs> it was really you, good. You go, girl. <laughs> I know, right? Actually, Alan Borvoy came up to me at the end and he shook my hand. He goes, who the hell are you? <laughs> Where did you come from? Because I didn't know he was going to be there. And I had done some research just two days before. I had a feeling that, you know, I should look up a couple of case studies. And and uh, and I looked up two studies. And one was based on um, Alan Borovoy's argument that he created precedence back in 1993. And, uh, and so I spoke to that case. And I said, we're here today because of the arguments made by Alan Borovoy. And uh, Eli Langer, he was an artist, you know, that uh, made images back in 1993 and blah, blah, blah. And uh, and lo and behold, we're doing the introductions and who's beside, you know, on the, as one of the witnesses. For, well, my jaw dropped. I was like, no, my whole my whole presentation, you have to make a 10 minute presentation. You have to read from it because the translators are given a copy of it. And so they're translating from the same copy that you've handed over. And I thought, I can't veer from this. Oh, my God, he's sitting right there and I am lambasting him, you know. But uh, it, it was amazing. And what was really amazing was at the beginning of that hearing, um, many of the committee members were like, oh, Mr. Borvoy, we're so pleased and so honored to have you here. Thank you, thank you, thank you for present, you know, gifting us with your time. And it's all in the documents. It's all in the Hansard reports. And, uh, and I was thinking, oh, my goodness, they're not going to like me because I'm really going to give it to them. <laughs> you know? and, no kidding. Yeah, and in the end, it was really wonderful. I was able to say what um, the president of the police association could not say. He started to um, defend me, and uh, and some of the committee members got very upset because they were reminding him that he was an employee of the civil servants and that he had to watch what he was saying. And so then I was able to say, but you asked him here as an expert witness. You are asking for his advice. So are you asking him to be quiet and not share his advice, or do you want his professional advice? So, again, I was able to stay, say stuff because I had no one. I, I took money from no one. That was one reason why I did it as a volunteer. I was paid by no one. I, I could just speak my mind and not have to be accountable to any organization, and that was imperative to me. Well, I have goosebumps. <laughs> I promise it's my audience goosebumps. <laughs> it's been a journey, I must say. You know, the death threats were something. I, I would get phone calls from Bowdoin Prison, and it was a prisoner that was able to get on a phone and just phone me at my home. And how he got my home phone number, I don't know, because I was unlisted. I was in hiding for much of my 30s and into my 40s. Um, because when I first started, no one was speaking out against pedophilia. And um, I had, you know, the civil, what was it called? 
the pedophile liberation party out of Europe, they were uh, sending me death threats, pipe bomb death threats, stuff like that. And, uh, and then of course the King's clear, I went after, um, uh, what was his name? Carl Toft. I went after Carl Toft big time, and he was about to be released. Uh, and so I exposed that case, you know, nationally. It sent reporters into the Maritimes, and uh, and the investigation really blew up. And uh, and yeah, it was uh, the death threats were were coming, you know, a lot, and yet. Through all of that, I thought, if I back down now, you know, I can't do it. And then there would be another case, you know, there would be the Jessica Koopman case out of Lethbridge. And I was able to get 50,000 signatures in a very short time, again, before the internet, right? So it was walking, you know, hand Yes. With a piece of paper and a pen, and wow. going to stores, and you remember this, right? <laughs> you know this, this, this way of advocacy mm-hmm. work, and uh, yeah, it was hitting the ground. And fifty thousand signatures is what I needed for a Parliament to be able to hear, you know, that uh, we wanted to change a law there for Jessica Koopman as well. And now, we did. You have also won many awards. Is there one in particular, one or two in particular, that you really? Are proud of uh, yeah I'm proud of all of them you know um, every time you get nominated it's beautiful in fact today funny you know, we should talk about this because uh, today um, I was nominated for the Order of Canada a long time ago and it was by the wayside you know it never went anywhere and um, today a friend just uh, contacted and said that they're going to nominate me again and so here we go so we'll see with the order of canada but i think my favorites gosh i've been awarded by the queen of england um and the united nations that one was 2001 and it was a volunteer of the year award by the united nations um that was pretty profound but my wow. favorite is I'm Aboriginal. I'm I'm Métis, so I'm uh, Cree and Ojibwe, and um, the Indigenous Association of Women sent me um, a nomination, and it was for the Escoya Award, the Justice uh, Division of the Escoya Award, and um, lo and behold, I won that. And you know, it just it, there's something about being honored by your own community that um, really touches your heart and and spurs you on to do more because uh yeah in the aboriginal community yeah we've we've had so many people that um have been affected but also that are lights in the darkness right and uh and i think we're really moving forward in such a dynamic way um we're we're embracing that power within again and uh and it's exciting. The residential schools is now part of our history. And although we haven't forgotten it, we certainly are being empowered by it. So let's switch gears and talk about the books you've written. Mm-hmm. Can you share what motivated you to write them, what what they're about, how, whatever you want to say? Um, well, I wrote a book a long time ago with my former husband. It was on... Um, 
on, you know, the empowerment of your mind over illness, specifically AIDS, because at that time, AIDS, again, was a, an epidemic, and we didn't know much about it. And there was a lot of fear. And so we wrote a book, it was in Cole's books, and it really didn't go anywhere. Um, so I had, you know, some experience in writing. But um, it was, gosh, I'd say, at least 14 years ago, I felt the urge to start to write again, and it was my story of my two near-death experiences. I died twice in 1993, and um, I was given The Five Lessons of Life, and that's my, the title of my book. It's The Five Lessons of Life by Carrie Cohan. It's just insights, you know. Those five lessons what is what spurred me on to connect with you know, God, spirit, whatever label you want to put on, everything that I've done, all the work I've done, I was illiterate. I was a, in the dummy class in grade eight. I failed grade 12. My brother didn't get past grade eight. My father didn't get past grade five. It's hereditary. It's a learning disability. And um, and so, you know, we we all suffered from it. But we all excelled, you know. My father was the best in sports medicine in Canada. My brother was a cartoonist with Reader's Digest. And and then I ended up being this advocate. So um, the five lessons of life is basically that. It's all about forgiveness, compassion, faith and trust you're on the right path, and unconditional love. And um, And when you apply those five lessons both towards yourself and towards others, that's when we heal. And I needed to incorporate that because for so many years, I worked with, you know, people that were in such extreme pain. I worked with over 35 individuals, you know, one-to-one -one that had um, child sexual abuse. And then I went on to be a counselor and a therapist and, and 10,000 clients later, still the same thing. And I, I decided to change my focus from being the advocate to being um, the healer. And uh, psychologically, my ex-business partner was Tony Robbins, um, and I used to own his franchise with my former husband in Vancouver and some other partners. And so uh, I learned all about NLP, became a master practitioner of NLP. And, uh, you know, NLP can be used in a really profound, positive way, or it can be manipulative. And I chose to use it in a real beautiful way to re to create new associations, to, you know, um, uh, retrain the brain, to, you know, let go of the pain from the past and step into a ideal self's future. And so that's what I do today. I have a retreat center here in Portugal. Uh, that's where I'm speaking to you from. And, uh, and yeah, it, life is really coming around. Um, and I'm helping literally thousands and thousands of people with workshops and group sessions and private sessions. And, and, uh, and I encourage you to look at the book, The Five Lessons of Life, because that's a good place to start with. You have written other books as well, though. I've, I have three that, you know, I think you're psychic because I have three that are coming. One is a workbook for the five lessons of life. Another one is called um, TFP, Transfuture Pacing. And that's where I work with clients. TFP is Transfuture Pacing. And I work with clients um, looking at their timeline, past, present, future, and, and, you know, creating a brand new future for them. So, and 
another book on empaths. Uh, this was an insight that was given to me in 2006, long before anything was on the internet. It goes back to the 1950s with the atomic bomb and uh, and massive prayers for you know peace. And I believe that empaths are the answer to those prayers people that are highly sensitive and want peace. So those are my books. <laughs> and in summary, what would you like, what message would you like to give to the audience? Um, never give up. Just like you were saying, you know, when, when I first started, um, we didn't touch on, pedophiles often target children that are either sickly or neglected. And, our oldest was sickly at the time. She had spent a month in children's hospital, was air down to children's hospital, and I had to become her advocate first. So it was creator's way of getting my muscle going because, you know, I knew something was wrong with her. I knew it. And it turned out she had Giardia, um, beaver fever, uh, contaminated water, right? But I would bring her into the doctors and they would say, there's nothing wrong with her. She has a low-grade fever. She's fine. Go home. And this went on for three months. I I was, you know, she's losing weight. She's, wow. you know, two years old. She's gone from 24 pounds to 16 pounds. There's something seriously wrong here. And uh, they labeled me as Manchowson syndrome, uh, you know, a parent that is trying to get attention through their parent, their child. And finally, she collapsed. She And we ended up having to air back her out. So... Be that advocate. If you know that something's wrong with your child or that you think that there's a need for justice or whatever your heart is desiring, you know, if, um, you know, a certain cause needs a voice. You know, for two years, I sat waiting for someone else to do it. I, I had, you know, had the the case in um in northern BC and 1998 and yes I did the the town hall meetings but there was a lot of backlash people didn't want to hear it so for two years I sat silent we moved to Calgary and I heard another case over the radio where two children were molested in their own home a babysitter was put in the uh, tied up in a bathroom and I thought that's it when kids aren't safe in their own homes especially man I've got to do something and that's when it all began <laughs> huge you know i i started and so my message is never give up you know if everything seems against you find the humor number one ask what's good about this and my mom always said today's tragedy is tomorrow's blessing know that this too shall pass and there is a blessing in all of this for me the blessing was thank god i was molested when i was three years old because had i not been molested I wouldn't have known his energy, and I wouldn't have taken it as seriously as I did. And I wouldn't have changed all those laws. I wouldn't have been tenacious enough to change all those laws. So thank God I went through that. So when you look back at your life, be thankful for any tragedies that you've gone through because there is a silver lining. I love the way you sum that up because I totally, 100% agree with you. We can be victors or victims, and if we look at our past as being in the victim mode, we're never going to graduate. We're never going to get past that. But when we look at it as how we can help someone else because of what we went through and because of what we have not only endured but have 
and survived but also thrived and and went forward to help somebody else and used our story to mm-hmm. encourage other people to help other people that's what this show is all about which i said at the top of the show and you are a perfect example of that and are you quitting anytime soon <laughs> Well, you know what? I've I've kind of handled the gauntlet over. Um, When I look at like little warriors, uh, um, Gloria Meldrum took, uh, she's the founder of uh, Little Warriors. And I helped her initially in the very beginning years of, um, you know, recommending board members. And I reviewed her classes and stuff. And, uh, and I remember thinking, this is what I could have only dreamed of to have sponsors, you know, but I paved the road. So that way, it made it accessible, and it made it acceptable to actually speak about pedophilia and and sponsors. Wow, you know, and now, gosh, you know, there is she has such wonderful support in the community and the country actually for for what she does and there were so many others you know uh Roz um in Manitoba um her organization and um uh, forgive me I it's been a couple of years that I've been out of it I have retired uh from the advocacy as such and instead shifted my focus on the healing and uh and it's it's a pretty powerful place to be all I can say is thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for uh, encouraging. Thank you for giving us avenues to research for whatever we want to advocate mm. because children in particular, I'm sure that that's where your heart is. They need someone to stand you they know, do. in the gap for them. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the oh. laws that you were able to change it's i'm i'm speechless and that's not that's pretty unusual for me <laughs> but i i'm overwhelmed with thanksgiving is what i'm trying to say thank and you Carol. i appreciate you you are well versed and uh you know your stuff and i'll tell you if i was in the kitchen with you and you were holding a knife i'd be running too <laughs> He ran. Oh, my goodness, he ran. (laughs) On that note, never give up, never quit, never back down from your adversaries because you can do it. And you are a perfect example, Carrie, of doing just that. And I thank you. And we look forward to see what else you're going to be doing, even even now in your retirement in the next few years. Absolutely. Thank you for being on Never Ever Give Up Hope. It's my pleasure. Thanks again, Carol. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.